0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee,
1: so without further ado, here he is. We've come to the end of the year, and uh, I don't know about you guys, but in spite of some of the great highlights of 2021, I'm really ready to close the books on this year. (laughs) And so it's with some relief that we've come to the end of what has been enormously challenging year, God has shown up, but it has been hard. And when you come to the last service of a year, uh, we each carry something in, probably one of two things in particular. You've probably carried in a sense of weariness or heaviness, because a year is a long time to collect things. And a lot of what we collect are things that we'd rather let go of, but they accumulate over the course of a year. And so maybe that's how you've walked in this morning. If you're at home, maybe that's exactly how you're feeling as you're watching the live stream right now. But also as the year comes to a close, because of the way we mark time, it also introduces the start of a new year. And so often we also feel optimism, hope rising, a yearning that maybe next year in some very important ways to each of us will be different from the year we just had. That maybe some of the things we were defeated in or that frustrated us, maybe some of the things we failed at again and again, maybe next year will be a year of victory. Maybe that thing which never seems to change will finally break next year, and we'll see something happen. And so you've probably carried one of two things, or it's possible you've carried both of those things, even in equal measure coming in here. Are you tired and heavy? Are you hopeful and optimistic? The good news is this that the God you've come to worship here today lives in both of those places. He loves to show up in either case because He is the God who carries our burdens. He's the one who takes our weariness and fills us with strength that we don't have. But He's also the reason that it's worth it to hope. If we're just mammals, Competing with one another for limited resources, hope is really a stupid thing. Forget hope, just fight. But we can hope because we don't walk through this life on our own. There is an all-powerful God who is with us and for us. And so because of him, hope is not stupid, even though the world would try to tell you it is. Hope matters only because there is a living God who loves you, It's more powerful than you. And yet, having said that, I know how hard it is to hold on to faith in the world that we live in. Can you just join me in acknowledging that, especially if you've been a Christian or a Christ follower for more than five years? Because after about five years, you already start to feel the beginnings of, like, that novelty is wearing off. It's getting a little old. Things are too familiar. And you have to every year sort of drum up some fresh enthusiasm for a thing you've been doing for a really long time. It's not just Christianity. It's just about everything. I think that's why they make university the last four years, because by fifth year, you're like so over it. We get over everything after about a four-year cycle. Friendships, maybe even marriage. I know that children leave our house at 18 for their own survival right? Because it's just the way of things. Very little in this world lasts because we don't last. There are powerful forces all around us that conspire against faith. And there's some pretty powerful forces inside of us, desires, yearnings, plans that work against faith as well. So this morning, It's our tradition every year at the last Sunday of the year to observe what we call Recommitment Sunday. It's not a heavy-handed guilt trip. It's an invitation to just take a time out for a minute and think about who Jesus Christ and the living God are to you. You answer that question for yourself. In fact, that's all we can do. Every day we are answering that question through our lives. Who is he to you? And on this last Sunday of the year, the invitation is this. Pause and really take that question seriously and then decide whether you want to fully walk with him, devote your life to him in the coming year or not. It's a freedom you have, a choice you can make, but it's yours alone to make. And this is our opportunity that we're presenting to you to make that choice in a rhythmic way every single year. At least one out of every 52 Sundays, we intentionally ask you to pause and take stock of that. I think a brick wall is a good illustration for what it feels like when you're trying to hold on to faith. And the world and your own heart are conspiring against you. It's like when you hit a brick wall, you have one of two choices. You either just give up moving, you stop. Or you divert and you turn and change directions. That's the way most normal people respond to a brick wall. But the way Christ calls us to respond to the brick walls that want to stop faith is to break through. How do you break through the brick walls that want to destroy faith in your life? Well, I think the word nevertheless is one of the most powerful words that we have. The word nevertheless is really powerful because it doesn't make light of what we're facing. It doesn't pretend the brick wall's not there. right? You're, you're, you're a fool. If you act like the wall doesn't exist, it's going to hurt you. So the word nevertheless says, well, there it is. It's a pretty solid obstacle. It's hard to keep moving because look at this thing. And so it acknowledges the hardness of holding on to faith in this world and accepts that the easiest choice would be to either stop moving or turn another way. That's the case in every relationship, in every hard thing in your life. You've got to acknowledge the reality that it's hard, and you've got to acknowledge that the easiest choices available to you are usually the ones that hurt you the most, but they're the easiest to take. I'll just stop trying, or I'll just change. I'll exit, I'll bail, I'll move away. The hardest decision to make is to keep plowing ahead and break through that wall. And that's the word nevertheless. It says, I acknowledge all that, and yet... Nevertheless, I will continue making a choice that helps me break through that wall. That would be a foolish message to give you if the power of the living God weren't behind that word. If it's just you, uh, my kids see me do this all the time. Like when I eat something way too spicy, I don't know where I learned this, but it's like some kind of strange ancient Asian power comes through. I channel my inner power. And if it's just that, if it's just you reaching into your key and just, (laughs) stupid, waste of energy. You can't break through brick walls all on your own. But what if you had a wrecking ball? What if you had something that actually could? This morning, I want to give you a short message. We're going to do a couple interesting things along the way in this message. And I want to give you two invitations as we mark the end of this year and the start of the next they both revolve around this word, nevertheless. When you hit those brick walls that want to kill your faith, make you stop moving, we just change directions in Baal. The first is, nevertheless, I will keep serving God. I found this now in my 26th, going into my 27th year as a pastor here, to be a, a, a challenge that never goes away. Though this is my job, other options are available to all of us. Pastors are not exempt from making mid career changes. Every year I serve here, I have to choose to say these words. Not because you guys are horrible, it's hard, because every year you can't do this level of work without really meaning it. This is not a job you can fake. Well, actually, you can, but something inside you dies. In the first century, when Jesus was around and his followers shortly after him, the average life expectancy was, depending on which scholar you read, anywhere from 25 to 40 years. So people didn't live a very long time in those days. Largely, those numbers were low because of high infant mortality, but also because medicine was not great and the world was more dangerous. If you had a lot of strength, a lot of power, or if you just ran into the wrong lion in the wrong woods, you're dead. And so people could expect to live on average between 25 to 40 years. Around the time that the Apostle Paul was closing out his ministry, he was in his late 50s. So towards the end of his life, Paul was about maybe 58 when the, the book of Acts was coming to a close. And he had lived a really long life by the standards of his day. And it wasn't just a long life, that would be remarkable on its own, but he'd lived some really, really hard years. Right? You know, when you suffer, it's kind of like dog ears. Like, yeah, I know I'm 54, but if you knew my life, I'm really 106. That's how long this life has felt. And so that's the way some people, I think about it. Paul, since the day he's decided to follow Jesus, his life decidedly took a left turn into a much harder road. One of the hardest passages to read, especially if you're in vocational ministry and you have to follow this dude's example it's 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 to 28. I don't know if you've ever read this, but Paul, he's out of his mind because he's trying to defend his ministry, his calling. And he says, look, I'm not a fake apostle. I really have given everything to follow the Lord. And he begins to give his resume of suffering to make his point. Nobody goes through this for a lie. And he says, I've worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's why they put you against the post and they whip you until your back is raw 39 times. It's designed to be a punishment that brings you to the brink of death, but you live through it, hopefully. He received that five times in his 50-something years of life. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, I'm ready to retire just reading his story. I don't know about you, but... If I could honestly give that as my testimony, I don't think there's a human being alive who would fault me if I wanted to just lay down the sword and enter a quiet retirement. Just to say, like, hey, how could you possibly say I haven't done enough? It's been a heck of a life. I would love to just stop fighting. Isn't this good enough? That's why I find the closing of the book of Acts so remarkable, so inspiring, The book of Acts catalogs the work and ministry of those men and women who established the Christian faith throughout the known world in Jesus' day, laid the foundation for Christianity to become still today the largest faith on the earth. In the last two verses of this incredible book, here's what it says about the Apostle Paul. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. These verses are about the fact that Paul finds himself at the end of his life in the city of Rome, the most important city in the world of his day. And he's there not on the circumstances he would have liked, but he's there because he's a prisoner. He went there to face trial because he appealed to Caesar. And so they bring him there and they put him under house arrest. But think about this, the wealthiest empire in the world, they don't even pay for his prison. They make him be under house arrest in a house he has to pay to rent for himself. And for two years, he's living this way. And house arrest, they didn't have ankle bracelets and all that back then. But there was a guard posted outside his door. And the one rule is you're never allowed to leave this house ever. And so he was dependent on the kindness of others to bring him all the things he needed, and he had to pay them when they came. And so this is Paul's circumstance for the the, the last two years that we have a recorded history of him, is that he's under house arrest, frozen in his movements, and yet, though he cannot leave the house, he extends the word to everyone around him, come and hear, I want to preach the gospel to anyone who will come and listen. Now, I don't know about you, but That's not what I would have done, most likely. I'm just going to be honest. If I could finish a life like what we just read about, and I have to be in a house and know I can't go anywhere, I'd say that's a gift from God. That's like a forced personal retreat. Can I get an amen from the introverts among us? I'm not an introvert, but man, if you're an introvert, this is your chance to be like, amen. Just whisper it with me inside that would be awesome. The last two years of a hard life, you're like, sorry, guys, I would totally be at that speaking gig, but I can't, I can't leave the house. What do you want me to do? In fact, I wouldn't even tell anybody where I was under house arrest. I'd just be like, listen, I, ca- I can't. It's not me, it's the Roman government. It's not what Paul does. He circulates word all over the city. I can't go anywhere, but if you want ministry... If you want to hear the truth, if you want prayer, you come to me. I will spend as long as it takes. And it says people came, one after another, in groups, as individuals. And he took all comers. And he ministered with great zeal and energy until the end of his life. Tradition holds that eventually, around the age of 60, he was beheaded for his faith. Now, the crazy thing to me about all of this is that the Apostle Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. This has been one of his bucket list life dreams. Rome was the most important city, and he was it was the one place where Christianity was flourishing, and he had nothing to do with it. Somehow the gospel broke into this impossible place and started spreading like a fire, and he was hearing reports all over the known world that the Christian community in Rome was a very special group of people. Their faith was known all over the world. These were people who were living out their faith dangerously and intensely. And so he says in the, his introduction to the book of, of Romans, this is a letter to the church at Rome, a church he's never met before in person. And he says, "One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord." When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. So the thing which he wanted all his life to do, he finally gets to do, but not at all the way he'd like. Has that ever happened to you? Finally, I got married. Finally, I had kids. Finally, I started my business, and it didn't turn out at all the way you had expected And you're left with this feeling of, then what? I got into the school of my dreams, and it's a living nightmare. I finally got the job in the industry I wanted, and I hate my life. Someone help me. This happens all the time. And most of those times, for us, it's a brick wall. We just stop or we bail. Paul makes the most of this situation. It's not what he wanted, but it's how God gave it to him. And instead of just going, whatever, he says, nevertheless. Paul's a great example to us of someone who in every season of his life, no matter what brick walls were presented in his path, decided to say, nevertheless, for the sake of Christ, I will break through. When he was young and healthy, he could have lived for anything. He used his youth. And his energy to travel broadly, preach the gospel, and get the crud beaten out of him all the time. When he was single, like any human being, he was lonely. But he poured that energy into ministry friendships that really bore fruit later in his life. These are the friends who weren't just friends, they were brothers and sisters, and they ministered to him when he could not go anywhere. When he was broke... He didn't resent the fact that he had to pay for ministry out of his own pocket. He used the one professional skill he had. He made leather tents and he sold them and he funded his own ministry. Whatever the situation, whatever the season of his life, whatever the brick wall, Paul is an example to us to say, I can make nothing of this or I can make the most of it. That's a choice that is given to me. That's the dignity that God gives. Paul is a great historical example. But we have a great living example. We have many in our church, but I've invited one such person to come and share a conversation with me, and you get to eavesdrop on it today. I want to invite Lynn to come up and take a seat up here, and I'm going to interview Lynn for you because Lynn is someone that, as I've gotten to know her over the years that she's been at Harvest, she's inspired me a great deal. She used to be one of the pastors at Willow Creek and is now worshiping with us, and I want to just ask Lynn a couple questions. If you want to just grab that mic, Lynn. Sure. Um, Hi. And uh, (laughs) Lynn Rickert, everybody, you can (laughs) encourage her. So, Lynn, I guess the first question I want to ask you is what life stage would you say you're in, and how have you found that that affects your approach to life and your faith?
2: Okay. Well, I'm married, and I'm the mother of five children, all over age 21. And I have two grandkids, which are the best medicine that exists. No offense to any medical professionals. Um, I'm retired, and I'm 67. And, um, you know, I have experienced God's faithfulness through many um, years and struggles and some traumas. And I have found through that experience that he is faithful, and he's good, and he's very loving. And, um, and that there's been immense joy for me in the midst of those struggles and things. But being 67, uh, there's a lot more of my life ahead of me, <laughs> I mean behind me, than ahead of me. So that's caused me to be more focused and intentional about the future.
1: Amen. Is anybody Amen. else shocked that Lynn is 67? <laughs> I, I still feel like that was a typo when I first read it. <laughs> <laughs> Just getting to know you and, and experiencing your energy, your hope. And knowing some of your story, and when you say some of those years have been hard years, Mm -hmm. um, I don't think most people would appreciate just how hard. And yet, man, at 67, you still strike me as someone who's on the move, loves Jesus. And I want to ask you, at this stage of your life, Mm -hmm. when most people are thinking about just resting, Mm -hmm. what is God stirring in you?
2: Well, there's been a lot of pruning going on. And... um... And he's stirring in me to accept that pruning, to abide in him more, rest in him more, and to reach out to people more who need Jesus. And um, the big pruning thing really for me is that he has been telling me I have to stop trying to control outcomes and engineer life, which is very disappointing because I think I know how everything should be, you know. (laughs) And um, so for me wanting control is about fear and it's about um, lack of trust in god so i have to carry that burden and give it to him all those things that i want to turn out in a certain way um you know sometimes that's a daily adventure to just place all that at his feet and one one example that's been really profound in our life and I'm lucky to be married to the man I'm lucky to, or I'm married to I'll just tell you that right from the get-go. But um, probably most of you know someone who would say that marriage is not necessarily an easy adventure. And I remember that when Tom and I went to premarital counseling, and one of the questions we each had to answer was,, um, <clears throat> "What expectations do you have of each other during marriage?" And I said, "Oh, I don't have any." which is hilarious because, of course, I had tons of expectations, as we both discovered over the coming years. And, um, and a lot of those expectations were not expectations that a human could meet. And the night before we got married, I remember very clearly praying about getting married and having God make it really clear to me that my task, well, task doesn't make it sound very good, but was to walk next to Tom and recognize that my point of focus in the years ahead was to walk with him down that road into the journey and not to just turn around and be in his face all the time. Well, that's my greatest strength is being in his face. (laughs) So, um, you know, we went through some hard years, and there were even some years where we really didn't connect much at all. and. To God be the glory, because He softened and healed and drew our hearts toward each other and um, and i 'm really glad that we stayed together you know I had to I had to learn to reorder my affections, so I wanted you know I wanted a hallmark movie, which that 's just trash'm sorry <laughs> sorry, sorry, but um, you know Jesus said. Well, in Scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I wanted to love Tom with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, um, you know, that's probably a little overwhelming. And um, so I had to learn to take all my needs to Jesus every day. I think that's what it means. It's not, oh, he deserves this. It's like, no, then you need this. (laughs) And so I had to begin a practice of, seeking his love and his acceptance. And I can honestly say that that has become the greatest joy in my life. And I love being married. I love being a mother. I adore being a grandmother. And, um, but that has paved a way for me to walk next to Tom and for us to continue on this journey. And, and that's been very freeing. For us, and he's also stirring in me um, to rest in him, and so for me, you know, it's like Psalm 23 says, um, "I will make you lie down in green pastures," and I feel like he's actually like held me down, <laughs> and um, and not in a bad way, but it's for me, I can, I like being busy. I can be a Mach 10 person if I want, well, not anymore, but I used to. Um, I like having projects. Honestly, I can say there are people who have said to me, why do you make work for yourself? (laughs) But I like projects, and I like thinking about things, and the Lord has shown me that there are things to be pruned out and not put so much energy into, and that resting in him brings me to a place of peace and gratitude. And, you know, I am grateful for a lot, and as weird as it sounds, in some ways, I'm most grateful for the really hard things that have happened in my life because I'm not sure how devoted I would be if it weren't for those hard things because those things forced me to seek God because there was nowhere else to turn. He had to help me through those things, and he really showed up and was so faithful and gentle and generous. And so that's that's been really important to me. Um, and then another area where he's been stirring me is in reaching out to others who need Jesus. And I've reached out to—I oh, am not— a brave or skilled evangelist by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm working on acquiring more skills about that. And um, I have reached out to a few neighbors, and so that's kind of exciting. And there are two younger women who have crossed my path, and I'm sure it's only by God's design. I would have not encountered them if he hadn't brought them into my life, and they have questions about life and beliefs and um so we stay in touch regularly and um i consider them to be part of a garden that i think the lord has assigned to me which includes my family my church family neighbors random strangers um but i want to tend that garden well
1: thanks lynn Mm -hmm. thanks for being uh transparent and vulnerable about some stuff that's pretty personal
2: Oh, can I say one more thing? Of course. Um, You know, all of this has... Fortunately, Tom has been very steady. He is a very steady person. Mm -hmm. And um, so he has waited for me, you know, to, like, get over myself. And... um, and God has really worked in me, and we are literally happier now <laughs> and stronger now than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. And a couple of our kids have said, um, what are you, is this real? Are you guys actually happy? <laughs> and, and the really beautiful thing about that is that we've been able to say yes mm. and tell the story and point to Christ, mm. you know, because he's the one who did it. Amen.
1: I suspect people would rather hear a little more from you than from me right now. I doubt it. uh, Let me ask you one last Mm -hmm. brief question. I I think you do have a lot of good years ahead of you. Both of you do. Um, But you and I are both in a season of life where we are thinking more about what finishing well looks like. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: What will finishing well look like for you, and
2: what will it cost you to finish well? Well, first, the cost. I think the cost is to give up control. Continually, um, and to give up selfishness and pride. Um, you know, ask me again in five years, I'm sure the list will be longer. But, um, and finishing well for me, I think, means fo- continuing to focus on these things that He is stirring in me and to run after Jesus as much as I can manage. I 'm so far from perfect at any of these things, but I am more grateful, and I accept the things he places before me, not always quickly. Um, but all of that brings more meaning to my life, and I think that's the beginning of, of finishing well. I, I hope that at the end that he says, "Well done, despite my brokenness and failure um, that would really be finishing well.
1: Amen. Thank you so much, Lynn. (laughs) Can we just give her a hand? Thank you. I know that um, some of you can say the same thing that Lynn and Tom said about your own marriage, your own life, the parenting journey, that it turned out to be harder than you initially imagined it would be. And if you, along the way, feel like you would love to turn to someone else and get a voice that is fresh, I'm sure they would be open to you buying them a meal or a cup of coffee and saying, could you just speak into our lives? They will offer you more wisdom, more experience than I could muster up. And so I, I, I'm i sorry to volunteer your time, but I know you love projects. Um, <laughs> I want to invite you to seek out this couple because they have, they have gained their wisdom the hard way. And what they have is the treasure they can give away to others. So thank you for your story. Thanks for being a part of our church family. And originally we had filmed Lynn so we could play a video, but Joe, as she was shooting the video, said it was, she was just so compelling. We can't do this on video. We've got to have her live. And so that's why we chose to do this. If we invite you to do a testimony, you will have that option to do it on video, so don't feel like you're going to sit up on the chair. But she's a seasoned, experienced public speaker, so she graciously accepted. Thank you for doing that, Lynn. I want to bring our time to a close by giving you one other invitation that will help mark the close of this year. That is, sometimes these brick walls don't crush our ministry, they crush our spirit. Have you found that? That you can keep robotically serving God, but your heart's not in it anymore. And so one of the things that I want to give you as we close briefly here is to be able to say, nevertheless, I will hope in God. Because the kind of struggles that Paul went through, the kind of struggles we all go through, create a brick wall that wants to crush any kind of hope. And say, what's the point of hoping when this is what life is like? It's very important to know that to stay committed to God isn't just about what you do for God. One of the most important commitments some of us will make this year is the commitment to keep hoping in God when your life wants to kill hope. I'm going to take only a few more minutes, but stay with me, because I feel that this point may be more important for some of us than the one that came before There's this beautiful psalm, Psalm 42, that speaks to this. And King David wrote it most likely during a period of his son Absalom's rebellion. His son Absalom, his oldest, wasn't content to live in the shadow of his famous father. And so he decided to take the throne for himself while his dad was still alive. And against all odds, he succeeded. And as a result... David had lost his throne, his family was fractured, and he was out in the wilderness running for his life. Everything David treasured, everything God had promised him, had gone to ashes. His life is falling apart. And he wrote the psalm in the wilderness. And Psalm 42, verses 3 to 5 are so powerful. Listen to these words. I think this is a psalm that is well worth daily reflection. Meditation for some of us. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where's your God? Boy, is that familiar. How can you say God's in your life when this is what your life is like? Then David says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Does your life ever feel like that? Do you walk into this place feeling like that's your life right now? Maybe you've hidden it really well. The person sitting next to you has no clue. Just what a wilderness you're living in right now. Everything's fallen apart. It's dry. And the worst part is you can't imagine anything changing And though you look for God in your life, how do we usually look for God? Don't we look at the circumstances of our life for evidence? What's good in my life? How can I prove God's here? Nothing is good. So where is God? It's as if we forgot that second O and made God and good the same thing. And when we can't find the good in our lives, most of us can't find God in our lives. And if that's what you feel, that's a place you're going to get to again and again in this broken world. I'm going to invite you to do two things David did. Remember a time when God felt much closer and more real, because that's what he's doing. This is terrible right now, but I remember vividly a day when we were marching in a large procession from the palace to the temple there was singing in the air and everyone was feeling good. I have certain moments in the history of Harvest that I cling to, but I'm feeling kind of low about our church. When I'm hearing lots and lots of really hard stories and I'm feeling lack of energy, I remember things like our 25th anver- our 20th anniversary banquet in that Chinese buffet, that room and listening to the stories and seeing the huge crowd gather and thinking, God has done amazing things. I remember our first Sunday in the high school. Like 60 people showing up early, an hour early to start setting things up. I remember times when God felt real, close. Faith was effortless. And then he does another really important thing. He says, I also look ahead to the future and I choose to hope in God. I don't have to look for signs because God's promise and his character are where I'm banking my hope. My hope is not in reading the signs of my life. My hope is anchored in this, that God has told me he is with me and he is for me. He has promised that better days will come with him. And if not in this life, then certainly without fail in the life to come, this God has not abandoned me. He has not turned his back on me. And I will worship him again with my whole heart. I can't feel that right now, but I choose today, banking on the character and promise of God, to choose hope and to look ahead to an imagined day when I will praise him again. Those are two important choices you and I can make whenever we come to that brick wall that wants to squash our faith is to say, I will remember a day that felt very different than today. And I will imagine a day that will feel very different than today. And both of those things can be imagined because God is in both of those places. Let me close this way. When we go through stress, and that's what brick walls are, they're times of stress, what what do most of us do? We usually break our routine, we get lazier, we medicate with binge-watching, shoveling junk food down our throats, giving up exercise. We usually take unhealthy uh, pathways when we encounter stress, don't we? And as a result, our bodies begin to fail. Have you noticed that the garbage you put in your body creates a certain output or effect in your body? You become unhealthy, you become sluggish, your energy fails. And it's never the scratch cooking from, with farm-to-table ingredients. It's not when you actually go to the, the farmer's market, get the fresh things and chop them up. You never get unhealthy from that stuff, do you? It's all the processed, convenient stuff that when you're stressed out, you just start shoveling in. Never even get out of your car. That's not a proper meal. If you could eat the whole thing, buy it, get it, eat it in your car, you should not be eating that i to just tell you right now. And that's the way the body works. You shove a garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. Can I get an amen from the health nuts? This is your chance. Have you learned this the hard way? Yeah, health nuts, you're going to say it all on Facebook, Instagram this week. But you know that's a hard-fought lesson. But the soul works pretty much exactly the same way. And the thing about stress is it causes us to take really unhealthy pathways, even spiritually. It's not just the suffering and the trials that break down our spirit. It's all the toxic thoughts and beliefs and emotions that we allow to just linger there unchallenged. Shovel them in, that self-loathing, self-punishing. I love to just feel bad. I know that it kind of feels good, But that's the distorted intelligence of struggle that makes you think that. I think suffering makes us all temporarily stupid. So that you could actually say to yourself, I kind of like feeling bad. No, you don't. You don't. But that toxic habit creates most of the problems. So I want to close by introducing you to something that our friend Pastor Jeff Abiera, do you remember him? About a month ago, he preached here. He and his family have been coming to Harvest for a few months. Uh, Sadly, he's not here to present it himself because he's preaching at another church this morning in Naperville. But I got his permission to share with you. In fact, he asked that I let you know about this because this is a great way for you to start the next year. He's He's putting together a YouTube ministry. His vision is to reach a million people with the truth of Jesus Christ and an invitation to pause each day and just pray. So the name of his channel is Time to Pray. And he's created something called a 40-day soul detox. Now, we usually use the word detox about our bodies. It's like eating really unpleasant foods and drinking really gross things that look like they should be coming out of us rather than into us. And we do that for like 40 days, and somehow your body is healthy. The soul needs that, too, because you have accumulated a lot of poisonous thoughts, beliefs, and emotions. And this 40-day soul detox is meant to be a short break, usually about two to three minutes, uh, a video clip. And I want to share with you day two. This is uh, the day that he recommended. It's the shortest one, and it's called Cancel Fear. So I want you to check it out, and then I'll I'll wrap up our time together after.
0: Welcome to Time to Pray. Today's focus word will be fear. Today we will choose together to detox from fear and choose God's peace. Say it with me. I am a child of God. I am loved by God, and I am the light of the world. Fear is experienced by everyone, and it was designed to help us in survival. The act of living in constant fear, though, has many consequences and can lead to sin. See, when we stay in fear, it eventually turns into torment, an ongoing feeling of anguish, anxiety, and in reality, feelings of hell. When we stay in fear, it hands over our God-given dominion and authority over to the enemy. Fear distracts us from the purposes that God has placed over our lives. Fear is a thief to your present joy and present experience. Fear can be a stronghold to keep you away from life itself. The Bible teaches us, though, that Jesus came to give us peace. John 14:27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. See, peace is a fruit of the Spirit, and unless we abide in the vine of Christ, we will never be able to get peace and hold on to it. Being near to God brings a natural response of peace. Now why is that? Because the Word of God says that perfect love casts out fear. Today I want you to meditate on God's love. He loves you so much, And the Bible teaches us that he loves us even despite our imperfections, our faults, and our disappointments. When fear tries to tempt you today and creep in, use the authority of Jesus Christ and simply say, I cancel fear right now. Call it out and detox your soul today. It's time to pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now declaring that fear has no place in our hearts because you are with us. When we're tempted with fear today, give us the courage to be aware of it to command it to go, and to walk towards the knowledge of your love. Forgive us for the many times we have given into fear and have allowed it to torment us and not trust in you. We forgive ourselves and we hold on to your word that you can give us a peace that is not of this world. We thank you for being the Prince of Peace and Lord of our life, and we choose to detox from fear today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.
1: I'm going to give you a challenge for the next year. If you want to be different and feel different, you can't keep living exactly the same way and expect that. So I'm asking you, please make one choice next year to change the pattern of your day. And maybe this is a great invitation, a good way to start. For the first 40 days, if this is all you can manage as a spiritual discipline, let Pastor Jeff do the work with you. Give him two to five minutes of your morning and let him guide you into a biblically-based thought. And then just pray along with him as he prays. I think you'll be really blessed by this. I don't have the skills to put something like that together, and I don't have a voice like his. It's hypnotic almost. Let him serve you that way and make a choice to have one piece of structure that says, I will live differently this year. Amen? I'm going to invite you to just bow with me. A new year is like facing a road with a million forks. Next year, you could devote yourself to anything. It's your life. A million choices are available for you to answer that question, what will I be committed to? What will I chase all year? Only one of those roads leads to everlasting life. All the other ones eventually lead to destruction. That's not a threat, and it's not a mindless religious statement. It's the word of God that in the end, even if those things flourish, they will come to an end. Only one choice lasts forever, and that is the choice to follow Jesus Christ. So as we stare down the barrel of a new year, who is Jesus to you and what will you do in response? I'm going to give you a minute of quiet to hear from him. And then we'll end with a song. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org.